I imagine I will at least sing hallelujah. It's so hard to be in church and not sing, isn't it? It's just part of worship, at least for me. Uh, So uh, welcome to our our message. Uh, uh, Third or fourth, uh, Rob kind of interjected a bit about Abrahamic covenant last week when uh, we were uh, kind of covering between Genesis, uh, previous chapters in Genesis and Genesis 29 here today. Uh, continuing on with the story of Jacob and how uh, God worked in his life to, to teach him what he needed to know. Uh, let's pause for prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth in the Bible that uh, speaks to us in our everyday life. Uh, Lord, what a privilege it is to gather week by week and uh, day by day and just continue to hear from you. Lord, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We know you're not limited by geographic uh, boundaries, whether in this building or at home or wherever people are hearing this, Lord, uh, speak to them in their heart and uh, bless them and uh, help us to keep on moving ahead with you in Christ's name. Amen. Security and significance are two very basic felt needs. When our security is threatened, we become afraid. There's been a lot of fear circulating lately with all the news about COVID statistics and outbreaks and spikes. People we know may have had a close brush with the outbreak at Bayfield recently, for instance. After the week away for three of my kids and myself and daughter Emily's north of Edmonton, my son forwarded to us the news article about a prayer meeting near Fort St. John in northern Alberta that resulted in some 29 cases despite the organizers taking reasonable precautions. With September approaching, some parents are hesitant about their children returning to the classroom. What things make you afraid? As for me, I recall being afraid about a year ago when a burn pile I was lighting caused burns to a good portion of my body. Some of you remember what I looked like after that. As I lay in the bathtub trying to cool down the areas affected and then started shaking uncontrollably in shock, it was a pretty scary experience. More recently, I was driving my motorcycle when a car made a left turn and pulled out right in front of me. I'm pretty sure they didn't see me. That's frightening too. Fear affects our health more than we may realize. In spite of what they say, 90% of the chronic patients who see today's physicians have one common symptom. The trouble did not start with coughing or chest pain or hyperacidity. In 90% of the cases, the first symptom was fear. So writes an internist in a roundtable discussion on psychosomatic medicine. This is also the consensus of a growing body of specialists. Fear of losing a job, of old age, of being exposed. Sooner or later, such fear manifests itself as a clinical symptom. Sometimes the fear is nothing more than a superficial anxiety. Sometimes it is so deep-rooted that the patient denies its existence and makes the round of doctor to doctor, taking injections, hormones, tranquilizers, and tonics in an endless search for relief. Ann Landers was receiving an average of 10,000 letters each month, nearly all of them from people with problems. She was asked if there was one predominant theme in the letters she receives. You can guess where this is going. She said, the one problem above all others seems to be fear. People are afraid of losing their health, their wealth, and their loved ones. People are afraid of life itself. As we return to the story of Jacob, we find him fleeing from his brother Esau in fear. 
You may recall he had bargained to obtain the privilege of the birthright for a bowl of stew, a pretty shrewd deal. And later he stole his older twin brother's blessing by disguising himself before their blind father and outright lying. This did not sit well with Esau, who had been cheated. Genesis 27:41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Yes, that could be enough to make somebody afraid. Somebody going to kill you? Hmm. Her mother, Rebecca, caught wind of this and wished her favorite son, Jacob, to hightail it to her brother's place far away in Haran, over 400 miles, 640 kilometers, to the north and east. That's about from here to Cornwall or Gogama. Just I'd throw that in for Jim and Marilyn. He would have arrived there worn out, breathless, and with barely the clothes on his back, without much security at all. It caught Jacob at a pretty vulnerable period in his life. Jacob had to learn to trust God rather than his own devices and deviousness. When you look at the dialogue between him and God at Bethel, where he had the dream of the staircase to heaven, 28:12, there's a marked contrast between God's unconditional promise to be with and protect Jacob and Jacob's very conditional response to the Lord. It's conditional in the sense of using an if-then clause, Genesis 28:20. And Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Let's make a deal. You might recall Jacob's name means to grab by the heel or to trip up, to deceive. A nickname might be grabby. God arranges for this deceitful man to be dealt with by someone even craftier and trickier than himself. We're commanded to love our neighbor as herself, to observe the golden rule, to, to do to others as we would have them do to us. In bumping up against someone who has the same sinful tendencies as ourselves, we begin to get a picture of who we are, how the way we treat others comes across to them. We begin to feel the brunt of the pain we cause others by our own sinfulness and selfishness. At the outset of Genesis 29, Joseph arrives in Paddan Aram and meets some shepherds who know Laban, his mother's brother. He performs an impressive act of strength, rolling away the stone that protects the mouth of the well. Perhaps motivated to show off a bit for the watching Rachel, one wonders. He's welcomed by Laban, and after staying there a month, Laban inquires about wages, 29.15. Now, Jacob had his eye on Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, who was beautiful compared to the older sister, Leah, who may have had pale eyes or some other eye condition that made her less attractive. Genesis 29.18. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Hmm. Young men, would you work seven years to win somebody's hand in marriage? Hmm. However, that's not exactly what happens. Crafty Laban pulls a switch on the marriage night and in the dark gives Jacob Leah as his wife instead of Rachel. He explains it's the custom for the older daughter to get married first, but he certainly wasn't forthright about it with Jacob. Genesis 29, 23, and 25 says, 
But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? It's got to be one of the most understated verses in the Bible. When morning came, there was Leah. Surprise! Wouldn't Jacob feel foolish? Whether it was the dark or the veil or some combination, he sure fell for it. How does it feel, Jacob? After pulling the wool over your blind-aged father's eyes, now you've had it done to you. He protests, why have you deceived me? The deceiver, Jacob, grabby, catches by the heel, has been deceived, tasted some of his own medicine. Being tricked like that makes it so hard to ever trust someone again in a relationship. Is the lesson starting to register? Is, is pain driving the point home? Laban does allow Jacob to take Rachel as his wife after the week is up, as long as Jacob agrees to serve another seven years of labor. So that's 14 total for Laban's two daughters. A second way in which Laban tricks Jacob emerges after the 14 years. Jacob agrees to provide labor in exchange for the specked and spotted animals. Any solid color sheep or goats would obviously belong to Laban, 3032. But as soon as they make the agreement, what does Laban do? Before Jacob can get the non-solid coat animals, Laban secretly stacks the deck. Genesis 30:35. That same day, he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the specked or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Now, how would you like doing business with someone like that? And Laban continued to teach Jacob on other occasions, always trying to alter the agreement to his advantage. Genesis 31, 7a, Jacob speaking to Leah and Rachel. Yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. I'm going to talk a little bit about superstition, mechanically trying to stiff-arm God. There are examples of superstition and magic in this passage that are also symptomatic of people trying to coerce God, to manipulate him into providing a preferred result rather than trusting him to look after it. Today it might take the form of a lucky rabbit's foot or a lucky horseshoe or taking part in a seance or throwing salt over your shoulder, all these kind of superstitious things. The Bible is against magical acts that run counter to acknowledging God's sovereignty. He wants us to trust him, not trust in superstition and astrology and the like. Leah's son Reuben finds some mandrakes in the field. These have fleshy forked roots that resemble the lower part of a human body and were thought to induce pregnancy when eaten. Rachel was trying to get pregnant by magical means, so she made a deal with Leah so she could have the mandrakes. Well, Leah got a night with Jacob out of the deal, so it actually backfired because Leah became pregnant with the fifth son instead of Rachel. How'd that work for you? In 3027, Laban admits to Jacob, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Uh, divination is forbidden by the Lord later in Deuteronomy 18.10. 
says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer. Modern forms of divination would include fortune-telling, palm-reading, tarot cards, reading tea leaves, stuff like that. NIV Study Bible explains divination was forbidden to Israel because it reflected a pagan concept of the world controlled by evil forces, therefore obviously not under the sovereign rule of the Lord. Who's in control? Who are we going to trust? Superstition is also apparent when Jacob takes poplar, almond, and plane trees and strips bark on them to put in front of the watering crofts at breeding time, supposing this will help produce more speckled, streaked, and spotted offspring for the sheep and goats. Chapter 30, verses 37 to 39. Well, it seems to work, but in chapter 31, Jacob gets more insight into what was really going on. When Laban tried to change the agreement so Jacob would only get speckled ones, strangely, that's what the mother animals produce. 31, 9 to 13. Sorry, I think I've missed one here. Yeah, sorry, I'll go back here. Uh, so God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me, Jacob's saying to the Rachel and Leah. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. So God was showing Jacob it wasn't actually his superstitious methods that were responsible, but the Lord's intervention. Again, God wants us to trust in him rather than rely on means that honor lesser idols and other powers in the world. Now we're going to learn a little bit from Leah about trusting in God's power. Jacob's wives play a large part in his developing story. Now, their names aren't exactly flattering. Leah means cow, and Rachel means you. Hmm. But then Laban was a herdsman, so I suppose that can be understood. But even though Leah was not the attractive one of the two, we get a hint of a growing faith in the way she names her sons. She has six overall and at least one daughter. At first, there's a yearning for approval and appreciation from her husband, who made it quite obvious he loved Rachel more than her. That must have hurt a lot to know he loved the other wife better. Genesis twenty-nine thirty-two, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. These are puns or plays on words, so Reuben is connected to the, the Lord seeing the misery. But she wants her husband to love her. Next, verse 33. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. See how much her longing is for her husband to love her. Then verse 34. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, 
Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. In each of these names, we see some reference to her yearning for her husband's affection. But that changes with the fourth son, Genesis 29:35. There we go. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, "This time, I will praise the Lord." So she named him Judah. It seems her focus is swinging to trust in God and keep him in the forefront of her consciousness, being less dependent on her husband for approval. And of the 12 boys born to Jacob, resulting in the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah becomes the princely tribe, the tribe of great King David, and the tribe from which the Messiah, Jesus, would arrive. See Jesus' genealogy in Luke 3. So we see a shift starting to take place in Jacob's attitude. While at Bethel, he responded very conditionally and tentatively to the Lord's promises. And remember, speaking to his father, he said, The Lord your God gave me success. Your God, Jacob, sorry, Isaac's God, not Jacob's God. Jacob is starting to acknowledge the Lord's role in his life. 31 verse 5. The God of my father has been with me. Verse 7. God has not allowed him to harm me. Verse 9. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. He's acknowledging more directly God's involvement in his life. Jacob entered Haran with barely the clothes on his back, likely apprehensive, fearful, feeling vulnerable, on the run from a murderous, grudge-wielding brother. During his time in Haran, things changed. 30:43. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maid servants and men servants and camels and donkeys. But his attitude was also beginning to shift away from his own scheming to trusting God to guide and provide, even if that guiding means heading back to confront his threat-breathing brother, as we'll soon see. Maturity comes as we learn to trust in God, not our own strength. Luke 8, synagogue ruler Jairus had come asking Jesus to heal his 12-year-old daughter who was dying, 842. On the way, a messenger came with bad news, but note Jesus' response, Luke 8, 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Jesus raised her up. Last week, Pastor Rob talked about the Abrahamic covenant and how that extends down through Isaac and Jacob and eventually to all those who believe in Jesus as Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. By faith in God, we become children of Abraham, as it were, even if we're not physically descended from him. Galatians 3.29 if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And Galatians 3.14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. By faith, not fear. And we are blessed to share the blessing with others. 
Paul talks specifically about Abraham's faith in Romans 4. He's focusing on a point at which Abraham's physical ability was questionable because he was about 100 years old. But like Jacob a bit later, Abraham was learning to trust in God, not his own strength and ability. Romans 4, 19 to 21. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Hear those different faith terms? Without weakening in his faith, didn't waver through unbelief, was strengthened in his faith, being fully persuaded that God had power. Can you step forward into that degree of trusting. When a father picks up his little daughter and tosses her all around in the air, she laughs and enjoys it, for she trusts, has faith in her father. Even though she finds herself in unusual situations like being upside down a meter above the floor with nothing supporting her, normally an uncomfortable circumstance, she does not fear, for she trusts her father. That's the sort of faith we can have toward our Heavenly Father, too. When Meredith and her children got ready to head back to their home near Calgary from her week at Emily's north of Edmonton, they wanted to try the zip line one last time. Emily's husband, Trant, had constructed a zip line that ran between two trees in their yard about four meters up, so you had to climb a ladder to get to it, and then it kind of gradually came down towards the ground. Four-year-old Eliana got up to the top of the ladder, but then became afraid and wasn't willing to grab onto the handle and jump away. So we made a compromise. I picked her up by her lower legs and held her high enough that she could grab the zipline handle partway down and then walked along holding her so she could get a bit of the feel of it. When life throws us a zipline, we need to entrust ourselves to God's ability to see us through. As the Lord promised Jacob at Bethel, Genesis 28:15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. As Jesus promised his disciples at his ascension at the end of the Great Commission, Matthew 28:20, 20, Surely I am with you always, the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for working in Jacob's life, even though he was a deceiver and had done some despicable things. Uh, Lord, yet you have had mercy on us. You blessed him, and we trust that you will use us. Help us to uh, learn to rely upon you more, not to just be trusting in our own devices. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for the privilege of gathering today in worship, uh, some in-house and some at home. Lord, we trust that despite the the barriers that we're facing with COVID and that you'll continue to empower your church to make a difference in our community and our world and uh, just uh, build up the body of Christ wherever we find ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.